0: Learn what better writing can do for your company at Grammarly.com. Grammarly. Easier said, done.
1: It can be hard to see the challenges that people we work with every day are going through. I'm Holly Robinson-Pete. Join us on The Visibility Gap, a new podcast presented by Cigna Healthcare. Download it wherever you get your podcasts heart of where innovation, money, and power collide in Silicon Valley and beyond. This is Bloomberg Technology with Caroline Hyde and Ed Ludlow.
0: I'm Ed Ludlow here in San Francisco. Caroline Hides off today. This is Bloomberg Technology coming up on the program. Robo Taxis get a big win in San Francisco. Cruise CEO Carl Vogt joins me live on set as regulators vote to allow his company and Google's Waymo to truly commercialise their tech here in SF. And a Bloomberg exclusive, a government probe into malicious attacks on cloud computing, including Microsoft's role in suspected Chinese hacking of government officials. We have the details. And the aviation sector is about to hand passengers a $5 trillion bill to fight its next big threat, decarbonisation. We have the Bloomberg Big big Take. All right, straight to our top story. San Franciscans, get ready, because you're about to see even more robo-taxis on the streets. California regulators just voted in favor of Waymo and Cruz expanding their paid driverless services in the city. It's a major milestone towards commercializing the technology. The ruling came after hours of public testimony with citizens arguing for and against the expansion of the robo-taxi company's services. The two companies can now run full, truly driverless commercial services, charging fares day and night here in San Francisco. The CEO of Cruise, Kyle Vogt, joins me now. Kyle, welcome to Bloomberg Technology. Thanks, Ed. How do you operationalize this? Let's get right to it. It's
2: gone in your favor. What happens next? What do you do? Well, so it's, a bit, it's been a big year of scaling for us. So over the past several months, we've ramped up our operations in a very measured and careful way as we see the performance of these AVs improve on the road. And so the big difference with yesterday's permit, which is the sixth one we've got in California, the final one needed to commercialize our service, is we can convert that service from a free service to a fared service. And so it's a big milestone for not just us, but the, the AV industry. And I think a signal for you know, California that we are going to prioritize progress. Uh, versus accepting the tragedy of the status quo on our roads today. How strong is the signal? I, I tweeted or I Xed
0: that you're coming on the program. And actually a really fair question I got in response was, why did the CPUC just do San Francisco? Why not say to Cruz or Waymo,
2: have at it in Los Angeles, Sacramento, any other city in the state? Uh, that was actually at our direction. What we've been working with regulators, you know, like I said, for years now. And the very first time we went to the CPUC for fared service, it was for a small region of San Francisco, a limited number of cars, so we could you know, work with regulators and show them that this technology was ready. And so this is actually the second time we've gone for a fared permit, and this is an expansion of that original permit. And we'll do the same later this year, or perhaps next year, when we, when we expand into California and, and other cities in the states. So why San Francisco? Why is this the place to not just
0: test the technology, but commercialize the business?
2: Well, you know, candidly like we're based here in San Francisco, so this is our, you know, our home Very territory, right. but we see San Francisco as a, a litmus test for the commercialization of robo taxis. If they work in a city like like San Francisco where we have high population density, you know, steep hills, heavy fog, a lot of a lot of tricky construction and other things, then that means it can work in many other cities across sim- similar cities across the US. And of course, you know, from a business standpoint, um, these are the early days of the technology. These vehicles, the first version is always more expensive than later ones. And we want to start in cities where there's a high willingness to pay. So you'll see us start in, in some of the major cities before we work out into, into some of the other cities. What about money in your pocket now? Uh,
0: you know, I know the wait list is in the tens of thousands, so you are able to charge a fare, you onboard the wait list. Does that bring in sort of meaningful revenue for you guys? Because I'm gonna get into the history of your company in a second, but I am interested in how quick the impact of being able to charge a fare
2: is. Well, uh, you know, you know, today we're still operating in relatively small scale. You know, it's it's going um, we have on the order of hundreds of vehicles, but up from you know 50 or so a year ago, uh, and you're gonna see that move into the thousands. You know, not not right away, but over time. Um, you know, across several cities that we're operating in, but you know, it, the rate of expansion has been pretty impressive. And this is not because we're we're going you know just just uh, going wild here. It's actually because the AV system itself is improving so quickly. That's one of the, the remarkable things about AVs compared to human drivers, is uh, they can keep getting better over time and even exponentially. And so even just a couple weeks ago uh, on the GM earnings call, I said we were at about 10,000 rides per week. Um, this last week, it was 15,000. So we're seeing demand that's off the charts. And I think that's going to lead to um, you know continued expansion in the, in the near term. You know, I talked about the history. Last night on Bloomberg Television, we aired
0: an episode of The Circuit with Emily Chang. And she's talking to Gary Tan about Y Combinator. You guys were Y Combinator class of winter 2014. I think that's right. Nine years it's taking you to get to this point. Is that fast progress or
2: is that frustratingly slow progress? Well, you know, building a a car that can operate, um, you know, better in many ways than, than a human driver... Um, is one of the, the ultimate AI challenges, and there's there's no shortcuts. And so, you know, the first eight years of this 10-year journey um, was was a grind. It's continuous improvement, improving the software uh, to the point we saw compelling evidence that this is gonna have a positive impact on road safety. And so unlike, you know, other AI products where you can launch a product out there in the public as soon as it, it's kind of working, in our case, um, that technology really had to be matured and, and um, made robust before we put it out there on the roads. Um, and so it has been a 10-year journey, but. We're really happy now that we're finally able to put this out there and people are able to use it and we're going to see uh, you know, benefits in road safety as a result. Okay, so we're going to look at some pictures of
0: uh, what are retrofitted, customized Chevy bolts driving around San Francisco. It's also the case in other states um, like Arizona, Texas, right? A question I constantly get is why no New York City. But also know China, because there are Chinese players that test in the Bay Area and in Chinese
2: cities. Could you answer those two, please? Um, for, for New York and other cities, it's not a question of, of if, but when. And uh, you know, this, this technology, uh, the way we've deployed it is we, we make it work um, in a defined environment. And so in San Francisco, you've got uh, fog and sea hills, but you don't have um, you know, ice or snow. And so that'll come in the, in the next uh, couple of years. And once we add that capability, we'll be able to expand into some of the colder weather um, cities. But that's not slowing our expansion today. I mean, a, a year ago, we were at, uh, in one city just operating in San Francisco. Um, as of today, we've announced uh, uh, seven or eight, eight cities that we'll be in uh, imminently. And so you're going to see that rapid expansion probably in the Sun Belt in the areas where the capabilities are a match to what we see in those cities. Let's talk about the future
0: from the technology perspective and origin. So, right now, these are retrofitted or customized Chevy Bolts, but you are designing, and we're showing it right now, a purpose-built steering wheel-less, seats-inward-facing
2: shuttle. Mm -hmm. Okay, where are we with that, that product? Engineering is complete, You know we're on the verge of going into production, we expect some announcements on that in the next few weeks. Um, but the exciting thing about this vehicle is it's the first time a car has been built from the ground up uh, for this robotaxi purpose. So it lasts a lot longer than a regular car, it's designed to be optimal for pooled rides, so multiple people sharing a vehicle because there's lots of space between them. Um, and uh, the cost of it will be substantially lower than the first generation of the technology. So um, I think the cars on the road today feel like a car where you've just removed the driver, you still see the steering wheel moving around. Um, the origin feels like what a, what a driverless vehicle was meant to be in that experience that, that I think we've all um, perhaps been fantasizing about for years. Can you just explain in, in, in simple terms how when production starts,
0: you will deploy to the real world the origin against your existing infrastructure?
2: Yeah, so we've already been testing the origin, and again, this car has no steering wheel, so without uh, you know, any safety driver or anyone behind the wheel uh, in multiple cities, and as it goes into production, you'll see us um, start deploying those vehicles, you know, again, in a gradual and measured way across the existing um, you know, seven or eight cities that we've announced, and then ramp up um, you know, the number of those vehicles in each cities as, as we ramp up production there is a fierce, fierce battle for
0: talent right now, um, broadly in the theater of artificial intelligence, but machine learning or neural networks is a big part of what you guys do as well. What are your biggest challenges right now from a cash perspective, from a talent perspective that you've
2: got left to tackle in 2023? Uh, well, we're very fortunate to have, you know, robust support from General Motors that, you know, yes. uh, uh, Mary and her team see this as, as um, you know, a key part of GM's future. And so uh, when we talk to candidates, when we talk to AI talent, they will, like to see that strong backing. But also for many people, there, there are a lot of AI opportunities out there that are fun or interesting problems, but many of them still feel like toys. When you work on a self-driving car, that is having a real impact affecting road safety today. And it's one of the best ways that an AI engineer can spend their time, in my opinion. All right, Kyle Vogt, CEO of Cruise, a pretty big moment for robo-taxi or
0: driverless technology here in SF. The U.S. Cybersecurity Advisory Panel will investigate malicious targeting of cloud computing environments, including Microsoft's role in a recent breach of government officials' email accounts by suspected Chinese hackers. That, according to the Department of Homeland Security. It also confirms a report from Bloomberg News. Let's bring in our cybersecurity editor who's been on this story, Andrew Martin. Uh, Andrew, uh, help me understand the basics here. What is being looked at?
3: So, um, the Biden administration created this this cyber safety review panel to look at uh, major cybersecurity events after the fact to try to figure out ways to prevent it from happening in the future. And what they did here is, following a hack that was revealed in July that included um, a bunch of U.S. government email accounts, including Commerce Secretary Gina Raimondo, um, they decided to look broadly at... Uh, malicious attacks on um, cloud security environment and also at this specific hack um, by suspected Chinese hackers that um, got access to these email accounts.
0: Okay, let's go to Microsoft and their role in this story. What have we learned about what investigators are looking at Microsoft's role in all this?
3: So what happened in this latest hack is that that the the, the suspected Chinese hackers um, got what's known as, as a sort of an encryption key that allowed them to um, generate authentication tokens, which basically allow, um, allow them to uh, uh, act as legitimate users in these systems and get access to email accounts. And um, Senator Ron Wyden has wrote uh, a letter last month asking for U.S. officials to investigate Microsoft's role in this. He accused them of negligent cybersecurity practices. He also noted that Microsoft's products were um, involved in the Solar Winds hack um, from a couple of years ago. So he asked broadly for an investigation of Microsoft. This is this uh, cyber safety review panel is looking more broadly at not just Microsoft but all cloud providers.
0: I think it's important that we we kind of think about what the agencies are saying. We have a statement from the Secretary for Homeland Security, Alejandro Mayorkas, who says, organizations of all kinds are increasingly reliant on cloud computing to deliver services to the American people, which makes it imperative that we understand the vulnerabilities of that technology. Uh, Do we have a sense that they understand the vulnerabilities
3: now, Andrew? No, I think that's what they're gonna gonna try to figure out. Um, you know, the cloud obviously has grown very rapidly in the last couple of years. There has been a couple of major attacks that have exploited vulnerabilities in the cloud. So I think it makes sense to sort of step back and try to figure this out.
0: The thing that, that is interesting here is who in D.C. looks at this stuff at any given moment? You know, it, it, the, when you think about the departments investigating and probing, it's a digital issue rather than, I guess, a national security Issue. Can you can you explain to us who has jurisdiction here?
3: Yes. So um, yes. So this, there's an agency called the um, Cybersecurity and Infrastructure Security Agency, which oversees sort of the defense of U.S. Uh, computer networks. So they provide uh, sort of protection against attacks and. Uh, and intelligence to help the people who work in those agencies um, uh, protect against attacks. The Cyber Safety Review Board is overseen by them, they're advisory in nature. And again, the purpose of them is um, not so much to prevent attacks, but to sort of after the fact go back and say, okay, here's what went wrong in this case. What could we do better the next time? They've previously looked at Log 4J, which was a, a software vulnerability that um, uh, uh, in open source software. And they also looked at this hacking group called Lapsus, um, which had hacked a bunch of technology companies and come up with reports sort of recommending uh, ways to prevent against attacks against that nature.
0: All right. Our thanks to Bloomberg Cybersecurity Editor Andrew Martin. And again, that story confirming a previous Bloomberg report. Now, coming up here on Bloomberg Technology, the cost of flying green. Why some airlines are planning to charge passengers for more for flights in order to reduce their carbon emissions. It is a big number. Big. We'll have the details next. This is Bloomberg Technology.
4: Easier said. Done. The countdown has begun. From May 14th to 16th,
1: a thousand global leaders will gather in Doha for the Qatar Economic Forum powered by Bloomberg. Join heads of state, influential ministers and leading CEOs to make new connections, gain unique insights and uncover valuable opportunities in one of the world's most rapidly rising regions. Request your invite for this exclusive event at QatarEconomicForum.com.
5: The designated members of each House of Congress of the appointment. In February 2018 after being nominated by the former President and confirmed by the Senate, Mr. Weiss was sworn in as the United States Attorney for the District of Delaware. Mr. Weiss had been a career prosecutor having served previously in the office for more than a decade. Beginning in 2019, Mr. Weiss in his capacity as US Attorney and along with federal law enforcement partners began investigating allegations of certain criminal conduct by, among others, Robert Hunter Biden. That investigation has been recently referenced in federal criminal proceedings in the District of Delaware. And as noted in those proceedings and other public statements by Mr. Weiss's office, that investigation remains ongoing. In February, 2021, U.S. Attorney Weiss was asked to remain as U.S. Attorney for the District of Delaware and in that capacity to continue to lead the investigation. As I said before, Mr. Weiss would be permitted to continue his investigation, take any investigative steps he wanted, and make the decision whether to prosecute in any district. Mr. Weiss has told Congress that he has been granted ultimate authority over this matter, including the responsibility for deciding where, when, and whether to file charges and for making decisions necessary to preserve the integrity of any prosecution consistent with federal law, the principles of federal prosecution, and departmental policies. In a July 2023 letter to Congress, Mr. Weiss said that he had not to that point requested special counsel designation. On Tuesday of this week, Mr. Weiss advised me that in his judgment, his investigation had reached a stage at which he should continue his work as a special counsel and he asked to be so appointed. Upon considering his request, as well as the extraordinary circumstances relating to this matter, I have concluded that it is in the public interest to appoint him as special counsel. Commitment to provide Mr. Weiss all the resources he requests. It also reaffirms that Mr. Weiss has the authority he needs to conduct a thorough investigation and to continue to take the steps he deems appropriate independently based only on the facts and the law. Mr. Weiss will also continue to serve as U.S. Attorney for the District of Delaware. As special counsel, he will continue to have the authority and responsibility that he has previously exercised to oversee the investigation and decide where, when, and whether to file charges. The special counsel will not be subject to the day-to-day supervision of any official of the department but he must comply with the regulations, procedures, and policies of the Department. Consistent with the Special Counsel regulations, at the conclusion of Mr. Weiss's work, he will provide me with a report explaining the prosecution or declination decisions reached by him. As with each Special Counsel who has served since I have taken office, I am committed to making as much of his report public as possible, consistent with legal requirements and Department policy. Today's announcement affords the prosecutors, agents, and analysts working on this matter the ability to proceed with their work expeditiously and to make decisions indisputably guided only by the facts and the law. The men and women undertaking this investigation are public servants who have dedicated their careers to protecting the citizens of this country. The appointment of Mr. Weiss reinforces for the American people the Department's commitment to both independence and accountability in particularly sensitive matters. I am confident that Mr. Weiss will carry out his responsibility in an even-handed and urgent manner and in accordance with the highest traditions of this Department. Thank you.
2: If he was Weiss had the
0: authorities be needed, that was U.S. Attorney General Garland speaking. There, the news: the Hunter Biden probe has been assigned a special counsel by the Department of Justice. That special counsel, the current head of the probe, David Weiss, who will be the special counsel on the Hunter Biden probe. Let's head over to Washington, where Bloomberg's Kaylee Lyons has more. Kaylee.
6: Well, Ed, as we just heard from the Attorney General David Weiss, the U.S. District Attorney in Je- in Delaware since 2019 has already been looking uh, into criminal investigations against Hunter Biden, of course, uh, President Joe Biden's son. He has now been granted special counsel authority, and under which, according to Merrick Garland, the Attorney General, he will have full independence. He will not be overseen on a day to day basis uh, by the Department of Justice as he continues this investigation. It's important to note here earlier this summer, Mr. Weiss, the, the district attorney there, was involved in that initial plea agreement with Hunter Biden, where he was uh, supposed to plead guilty to two misdemeanor tax charges and in return could have avoided prosecution uh, on a separate gun-related charge. That plea deal had fallen apart Uh, in court. That is not a completely resolved matter. And now going forward, Mr. Weiss will have this special counsel designated uh, authority in the probe of the president's son. It's important to keep in mind here as well that a special counsel being appointed is something that Republicans have been calling for for some time now. And of course, in Congress, there are other separate ongoing investigations into the dealings, not just of Hunter Biden, but how the president himself uh, may have been involved. There was a hearing just recently with Devin Archer, Hunter Biden's former business uh, partner before the House Oversight Committee, talking about phone calls that the president may have been on with Hunter uh, simultaneously with business associates. So Congress is doing work here, and now again, uh, a special counsel, Mr. Weiss, the district attorney uh, in Delaware, has also been given, given that special counsel designation.
0: All right, Bloomberg's KU Lines in DC, thank you. The news that David Weiss, the current head of the Hunter Biden probe, has been assigned as the special counsel by the Department of Justice. Welcome back to Bloomberg Technology. Ed Ludlow here in San Francisco. A reminder, Caroline Hyde is off. I want to get a quick check on the markets and kind of how we ended the week. The Nasdaq 100, over the five days, down again 1.7% as it stands. Second consecutive weekly decline. And it's easy to forget But this is the first back-to-back weekly declines we've had on the tech-heavy index since December, when we had four straight weeks of declines. Earnings season has been a really big part of the story. But remember the US CPI print as well being a factor. Markets trying to understand what the Fed might do next. Remember, higher rates impact the present value of future cash flows. There's a lot going on, but it is interesting to note back-to-back weekly declines on the NASDAQ 100. We always go to that index because it's so tech-heavy from the Megacat perspective, which is a drag in Friday's session right through to kind of higher multiple software names. One name we're looking at in particular, Alphabet, parent of Google. It's lower during Friday's session, but on a weekly basis has actually fared a little bit better. What I want to talk about next is Alphabet's big old pile of cash. The Google parent generated nearly $29 billion in cash in the second quarter after cutting thousands of jobs and its efforts to staunch losses in its various moonshot projects. But the Google parent now has about $118 billion in cash and short-term marketable securities more than any other company on the NASDAQ 100 apart from Apple. But unlike Apple, which aims to give back most of its cash to shareholders, Alphabet does not have a well-defined capital return strategy. So investors are really right now seeking more details on its plans. And we'll ask. We'll try to get those answers for you. Now, from big tech to little tech, we know Google's going big on AI, as is Microsoft, other big names. But it isn't just about the mega caps or the giants. Take Mid Journey is an example. It's an independent research lab that's been experimenting with AI and can generate images using AI. It's the subject of today's Bloomberg Tech Daily's newsletter, and its author, Bloomberg's Davy Alba, joins me now. This is interesting. Like You and I interact with so many of the, the AI companies that are developing a generative AI tool. Um, we interact with their apps, their technology, why you've been writing about about this particular name in the newsletter?
7: Yeah, um, hey Ed, it's great to be here. You know, I think that Mid Journey, which, you know, has been floating around the name. Um, if you recall that viral image of the Pope in a puffer jacket that was actually created by Midjourney, it's one of the biggest AI image generating apps um and is only sort of um if you think about the three biggest ones, it would be Midjourney, journey OpenAI's Dolly, and Stability AI's Stable Diffusion. So this is, you know, one of the most popular and actually, according to this research, is currently the most popular image generating app that's Interesting. out there. And it's concerning that um, it can be easily tricked.
0: Okay, so the most popular names, MidJourney, Stable Diffusion, and of course, OpenAI, DALI, all very familiar to us here on Bloomberg Technology. There's something in your writing that really jumps out, though, that you consider MidJourney, and we think about standards, content moderation. Is it fair to say that MidJourney has the most flexible standards of those three?
7: At least according to this report, it seems to be the case. Researchers from the Center for Countering Digital Hate um, showed an early report, um, shared it with us exclusively, and they found a hundred examples where Midjourney's bot was easily tricked into creating conspiratorial images where they showed you know prompts um, where people were ordering up. Uh, these images of politicians in compromising situations and events that never happened, and Midjourney easily delivered uh, the the images. There are some guardrails, like Midjourney will not, for instance, generate an image if you have certain keywords, like blood or you know anything referring to gore yes. or violence. But it's so easy to trick it. Um, One example that we talk about in the newsletter is you could ask it to generate an image of, say, Bill and Hillary Clinton with their hands covered in strawberry syrup. So that kind of makes it look like they have literal blood on their hands. And researchers are really worried about this ahead of 2024 in the U.S. presidential election.
0: So we we've covered such wide ranging issues here on BTEC about uh, the text to image issue biases or, you know, a, a result that is not what you intended. Let's be fair here and say, what, what have Midjourney had to say about this? What is their response uh, to, to the reporting on their standards?
7: So they didn't actually send us a response uh, on the record, but it has said in the past that it has dozens of moderators and you know guides that look at the content on their Discord chat app. That is the the main interface that Midjourney uses to interact with its users. And they say that these folks, 68 content moderators, sort of scour the chat and make sure that all the requests are above board. But it seems like they're letting some requests go straight through still. And beyond that, there is sort of automatic algorithmic AI that checks on the requests usually using text matching to make sure that certain terms, for instance, again, about violence and gore, aren't creating images, but again, those are easily circumvented.
0: Bloomberg's Davey Alba with the Bloomberg Technology Daily. I really encourage our audience, go out, find it on Bloomberg.com and in the newsletter format. Thank you so much. Now, coming up here on the show, we'll talk about the state of AI development and adoption, but particularly in enterprise. That's with Insight Partners Managing Director Lonnie Jaffe. That's next. This is Bloomberg.
4: Easier said. Done. The countdown has begun.
1: From May 14th to 16th, a thousand global leaders will gather in Doha for the Qatar Economic Forum powered by Bloomberg.
0: All right, time for today's VC Spotlight. Let's talk about cybersecurity and AI. Insight Partners recently released its State of the Enterprise report, where they break down what the future of enterprise adoption and tailwinds in development of AI technology looks like. Managing Director Lonnie Jaffe joins us now for more. Here on Bloomberg Technology, so much of our audience either works for or is a customer of enterprise cloud, enterprise SaaS. They're thinking heavily about how the developments that are happening right now in AI impact their core business or how they use AI. Just give me sort of the key takeaways from the report that you published very recently.
8: Right, so the Insight Partners State of Enterprise Tech Report, this is a study that reached out to about 300 senior technologists at some of the world's largest companies. So 70% of them generate more than 10 billion or so in annual revenue and there's a free download from our website and has a lot of interesting data points around spending plans and strategy in areas like cybersecurity and generative AI. Uh, Cybersecurity was obviously a big focus. Um, One newer concern we're hearing from bigger companies and governments as well is around the possibility that we'll see a wave of generative AI upgraded cyber attacks. For example, something like ransomware, but much smarter because it's powered by something like a large language model. Uh, The government this week actually launched a two-week competition called the AI Cyber Challenge. This is uh, led by DARPA working with companies like Anthropic and Google and Microsoft and OpenAI, which uh, will have teams competing to identify and fix software vulnerabilities using AI.
0: Lonnie, sorry, I didn't mean to jump in on you there. I just wanted to say like on this show, when we talk in the cybersecurity context, so many people saying that the tools that we all have and you guys in your industry will have, the threat actors have them as well. Ultimately, you're a VC. So I, I, I'm interested why Insight actually publishes this report. What do you guys get out of it?
8: You know, we have a program called Insight Onsite. And it's generally trying to um, help support our portfolio companies with an enormous amount of resource. So it's 120 full-time people who help with things like product strategy and marketing and sales. And there's a part of the team called Ignite that manages relationships with buyers at large multinational corporations. And so this is a great way to stay in contact with them. And it helps our company scale and also meet uh, potential uh, uh, customers and partners and even acquirers, right? So like this week, it was announced that uh, Checkpoint will acquire our portfolio company Perimeter81, which allows you to build a secure virtual uh, corporate network over the internet for about uh, $490 million. And Rubrik this week also announced that it signed an agreement to acquire our portfolio company, Laminar, which is a leader in cybersecurity for data and use. So these are both deep tech Israeli cybersecurity startups. And, you know, when when the companies are relatively small and growing rapidly, that kind of connectedness with buyers can be really helpful to them.
0: Uh, Lonnie, I want to jump on something you just said there about Israeli tech. I know you guys have offices in Tel Aviv. One of the big stories of the week has been VCs' attitude towards the country, given the societal, judicial and political considerations happening there. How do you view Israeli tech right now? Are you pulling back or are you still interested, particularly in cybersecurity? You know, cybersecurity has been one of the mainstay offerings out of Israel.
8: Yeah, the cybersecurity talent there is amazing. Um, You know, you you see there's a, we're based in New York City and there's a pretty close connectedness between the New York City tech scene and the one in Tel Aviv. Um, There's a lot of uh, companies when they land in the US, and this is true for Europe as well, they'll they'll, uh, pick New York City as their landing place. There were a few initial companies like MongoDB and Datadog and others that were, you know, they proved that you could scale a massive infrastructure software company in Manhattan. And so that was a big early part of our interest in the country. We're now the largest investor by uh, both deal count and dollars and technology companies there. Um, and, you know, we're actually very helpful uh, to the Israeli companies as they start to scale up because they need to start scaling up internationally pretty much right away. And we have a lot of expertise around global scale out, you know, hiring sales leaders, uh, opening up your first international office, things like that.
0: Let's go back to you personally, you, know, you had a decade at IBM, now you're in, in, in the VC role. How do you find the next IBM? You know, in this environment, such a heavy focus on AI, what are you seeing out there?
8: Yeah, we're, we're still only a real, like uh, about a few months into it with the generative AI capabilities, but there seem to be some early important differences starting to show up when compared to the prior generations of AI. The AI prediction systems, like the recommendation engines or the computer vision classification systems in domains like healthcare, like our portfolio company, Iterative Health, which can use computer vision to find cancerous polyps from a colonoscopy video. These took a lot of time, effort, and resources to build. They needed big teams of very expensive engineers, complex data pipelines, lots of training and feedback data, Um, but with the new wave of generative AI, at least so far, many companies Especially, uh, you're seeing this with incumbent software vendors and even end customers have been able to build and ship generative AI products extremely quickly. You know, some have actually released things already this year, even though it's only been a few months. And then they're able to give uh, these language model or image generation capabilities access to their massive, you know, hundreds of millions of existing users, existing distribution. Um, and so, what we've been doing is working with our portfolio companies, like. Uh, Atlin, for example, which is one of our uh, better modern data stack portfolio companies that's going through really rapid growth and helping them figure out, okay, so you have you can build a generative AI capability and then you can light it up to all of your users and it can use your product. Um, and in a way, it's sort of a startup because it's within, you know, it's a new capability and it can do something really meaty and substantive. Like in the case of Atlin, it can do interactive Q&A with all of your enterprise data. You can ask it a question like, uh, you know, which of my sales reps is most productive this, this month? And it can go figure out across the catalog, you know, how to answer that question. Um, and our companies are able to get these impressive generative AI capabilities out the door in just a few months. So it does kind of tilt the balance of power a little bit between in, in, from startups to incumbents. But there are, there are a few really interesting startup categories that we've been uh, looking at. Like one, one as uh, Kevin Scott puts it, it's the companies that can make the previously impossible things possible. Um, but still hard, right? So there's still defensibility and hard tech, and you need really good talent. Like we have a portfolio company, Unlearn, that uses AI to create synthetic digital twins. So these are basically virtual patients created out of combining AI predictions with existing patient profiles. And it allows researchers to conduct clinical trials while needing significantly fewer real patients in the control group to get the same quality trial outcomes. So it's still really hard to do it, But it's now possible. And so there may not be an incumbent. Right. And so those things can lend themselves really well to startups.
0: All right. Inside Partners Managing Director Lonnie Jaffe. Good to catch up here on VC Spotlight, Bloomberg Technology. Thank you. All right, time for going viral. Have you seen this one? Jeff Bezos and his new waterfront mansion in Florida. Sources say Bezos agreed to pay about $68 million for the three-bedroom estate dubbed the Billionaire Bunker of Florida. The property is located in Indian Creek, a man-made barrier island, basically, in the larger Miami area. I know a lot of people that have moved to Miami. They're not spending $68 million on their house Hot there right now. Meanwhile, in other news, the richest person in the world, Elon Musk, says he spent three hours in an MRI machine earlier this week ahead of a proposed cage match with Meta CEO Mark Zuckerberg. He says the scan showed there's a problem with his right shoulder blade rubbing against his ribs, which requires minor surgery, and that recovery is expected to last several months. We do have no idea, frankly, whether that proposed cage match is going to go ahead. Uh, shifting gears, pardon the pun. Turo is taking on traditional car rental services like Avis, Budget, Hertz by allowing its customers not only rent cars from others, but list their vehicles on the rental market as well. Here to tell us about what the company is up to, particularly with Generative AI, Andre Haddad, Turo's CEO. It's been a while since we've caught up here on Blumo Technology. Um, I want to ask you first the macro story. We've seen, you know, with Airbnb, certain behaviours with short-term rentals. You know, when it comes to, to houses, what do you see right now in consumer behaviour with listing their vehicles on Turo? Is it because they're under pressure financially, or otherwise?
9: Thanks for having me. Uh, delighted to be here. The uh the picture on the uh, community uh, of the Turo hosts that we've got is been very, very positive over the last couple of years. As you know, prices have gone up, car prices have gone up, interest rates have gone up, and more people are looking for ways to make their car actually make sense financially for them. So we've seen tremendous growth in our hosting community. Uh, We've seen a lot of people also start building businesses on top of our app. So we've seen those uh, multi-car hosts really take hold in the community of Turo hosts. And now we're excited to be able to have both consumer hosts and multi-car host entrepreneurs who are building
0: small fleets on top of our app. The story of the year has been artificial intelligence, either generative AI tools or using a large language model to underpin your existing technology, what's Turo up to in the field of AI? Well, we're,
9: we've jumped into it. Uh, as you may have uh, seen, we uh, launched our uh, plugin for ChatGPT. We're excited about the initial traction that we're seeing. We think that can really transform the
0: way people discover. How does it work in basic in basic terms?
9: So you you uh, you add the plugin to ChatGPT. You download it to to uh, you add it to your ChatGPT app, and you have the Turo plugin on it, and then you can start navigating Turo in really uh, fun ways. You can actually ask to uh, get really wonderful cars in a particular location and you can describe the kinds of cars that you'd like, the kind of budget that you have the sort of specs that you'd like and then ChatGPT will provide you with an
0: incredible selection from Turo. So at its core it's basically automation, search, but at a next level.
9: Yeah, instead of having the customer go in to search and enter a lot of different criteria and filter through makes and models and prices and all the kinds of specs you can imagine when you're trying to find the perfect car for your trip. You can just ask GPT, ChatGPT to do that for you and we can deliver great selection thanks
0: to the combination of our plugin with ChatGPT. So what's the result been for Turo? Has it increased volume of traffic to the app or or any actually easier
9: matches? It's easier matching, yeah. We're seeing both an increase in uh, the matching rates as well as uh, growth in traffic because more and more people are discovering now Turo through ChatGPT
0: which is really an interesting development for us. Final quick, quick one growth of Turo? Where are you growing right now? You know, either here, domestically in the US or internationally? Uh,
9: Actually, we're growing uh, in all of our locations. We expanded last year in France and Australia. Australia was our most recent launch in November of last year. The US business continues to grow rapidly. uh, And, you know, we're excited to continue to expand geographically.
0: We see Turo having an opportunity to be everywhere uh, around the world. All right. our CEO, Andre Haddad. It's good to catch up back in SF on Bloomberg Technology. That does it sadly for this edition of Bloomberg Technology. What a week it's been for earnings, for markets, for AI, for billionaires. So much news about billionaires, but there's a lot more to come. And you can always recap everything from the show on our podcast wherever you get your podcasts. We're on Apple, we're on Spotify, and we're on iHeart. And of course, we're on all of the Bloomberg platforms. From here in San Francisco, Caroline Hyde in New York's coming back soon, guys. I promise, this is Bloomberg Technology.